Hello, this is Seneca. Welcome to Conversations with Myself, collaboration between father and son, or alternatively, a set of twins mysteriously born 22 years apart. Who knows? We will be sharing experiences and stories and opinions and thoughts and ideas and just generally exploring an unusual life and relationship. I started us out on this conversation about art and violence with the thought that the United States is the greatest exporter of violence the world has ever known. Let's see how we feel about that idea. We are our, ourselves really advancing the notion that a very, very few anonymous actors somewhere can terrorize large numbers of people by having them live under the presumption that they're vulnerable at any given moment mm-hmm. from an unseen actor. This is exactly yeah. This is exactly what I want. Big deal. Yeah, this is exactly what I want to talk about. And if you want to think about like the biggest picture version of that, uh, nuclear weapons, right? So what I'm interested in is exploring that territory. So like, okay. And that's what I mean by an exporter of violence. To me, that existential fear, like that idea that you might go out of your house and some some big bad is going to get you, and that that's there's something real out there, tangible that's that's causing you that kind of fear. Like that's a form of violence. That's living with a form of violence, in my way of thinking about it. And I think that we like we have prepared the world, and then and brought it home to ourselves too. I think we're one of the most fearful nations probably around. I mean, even even at my daughter's school here in Hawaii, where there are, we do not have things like school shootings. We don't, we don't have any of that shit here. It's, it's never happened. She still goes through these lockdown trainings, which are a psychological preparation for the idea that there are just crazy people out there, like a force of nature that are inevitably going to subject you to terror and death. And that's something you just have to prepare for, which to me is insane. It's totally insane. And it's infuriating. It's utterly infuriating. And I talked to the, I talked to, I've talked to every head of every school she's ever been in and been like, what the fuck are you guys doing? You're indoctrinating our children to expect that this level of internalized terror is just something they got to live with, which is insane. It's nuts. People are just inherently evil. Yeah. People are, people are bad. Just like hurricanes and tornadoes and and atomic war is bad. And you just got to prepare for all that shit and duck and cover because it's coming. You know, that's, that is you know, that sort of self-indoctrination is among the most dangerous things I think we can do, which actually tags on to what we were talking about last time. Like, we're creating these realities. We we reinforce these narratives. And when we do it enough, they're just as real as any natural object. You know, that, that narrative that you have to prepare for a crazy person because it's just a force of nature, <laughs> which is a totally ridiculous metaphor, I think. But if you say it and you say it and you say it, well, eventually it's just true. It just is. It's just just like a natural disaster. You got to prepare. You know, which well, is, human beings do have a tendency to manifest what they magically create. We, I know we do make things up. We are making everything up. I think we can agree that cars didn't exist before we made them up. But Balls this, didn't exist. Rain existed. There were natural conditions. <laughs> Weapons didn't exist. Shoes didn't exist because animals didn't need them. Bowls didn't. Need them. So I agree. There, there was, you know, humans are great at making things up. And right. No, we're so, also great at scaring ourselves by making things up. Right. Well, this is so. This is actually really interesting. So what I was going to say when you started saying that just now is, what is it? So okay, here's my thesis. Accept it or don't. But this is what I think. I think that. People self- I reject it. Okay, fair enough. People have self-organized <laughs> into larger and larger groups over time. 
We develop hierarchical leadership structures because of the kind of animals that we are. We manage ourselves that way. It works up to a point. We even generate beautiful, beautiful things, uh, cultures with art and sophisticated language and all kinds of amazing stuff. And at some point in that development, the worm fucking turns and the thing starts cranking over into this negative confirmation bias and everything starts looking like shit and we start getting scared and then we produce violence and that's how we go out right and then the whole thing starts over again so I, that's what i'm interested in talking about is like culture after culture after culture this seems to me like a repetitive pattern now i from my point of view sitting here at this moment in time it looks to me like we're in the end of one of those cycles with respect to our own culture where <laughs> if we were looking if we were sitting in a lab with our little lab coats and our smock hats on and our masks and we were looking through a stereoscope at the pathogen that causes the effect you've just described we would look deep in there and one of us would say to the other hmm humans are involved mm -hmm. <laughs> <That's it. laughs> like, oh they've got it now they're in they're infected and it's just definitely yeah okay it's only a matter of time till this patient is gone i mean i guess <laughs> I guess the good news is there's always something next so far anyway. Like we haven't, we haven't done such a horrendous job of just wrecking. I guess this time we have the option to just completely wreck the environment. So, so that it could be game over for all future development. So there's but that. Culturally that's been, culturally that's not the first time people have believed that. It's just likely in, in my lifetime, I'm, you know, a generation or two older in my lifetime, the atomic weapon thing, that was rumored to be the, you know, civilization and species killer. Yeah. The, in the beginning, that was a falsehood. There were enough humans, broadly enough distributed, you might have gotten a nuclear winter and that might have done the trick. Still, there was some possibility big chunks of humanity might have survived. So that was, you know, more or less. Now, <laughs> there are so many weapons, not just thermonuclear weapons, but biological weapons, which everybody's has and nobody says they've got, because that wouldn't be cool because it's against the law. And everybody knows the law can't be broken. So, except the Syrians, apparently, and the Germans before that. And I mean, so we know that, that we do have the ability to erase the species wholesale in here. And, that doesn't seem to impress anyone. Well, that's the weird thing to me. So like, okay, this is a fact that I think we're all um, aware of on some level. Like I watched the latest Louis C.K. comedy special, which I didn't love all of, but like he starts the whole thing by just going like, everybody in here are just people who haven't killed themselves yet. That's the, that's the entirety of everybody who's watching this or ever will are just people who haven't off themselves. You know, that's, that's, that's my audience. And that's sort of true of all of us living all the time at any given moment in time, right? It's like, okay, we have this species-wide uh, like self-harm motivation on some weird, fucked-up level. And I, what is that about? And how the hell do we correct it? Because what living with that is just a horror show. Like, this is, okay, the results so, so, are bad. So let's stop for a second and think about that. Actually, think about that question. So that there's... One of the difficulties that I have, and I think you and I share on these meta questions is, they sort of never have an end point, right? So when you ask that question, you wanna say, well, what are the options? <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. is, there, is, there, uh, is there a 
trend, a tendency, an equal and important balancing aspect of the human character, which has the possibility of winning out over the bleak season finale for the species that we're talking about. Mm -hmm. What else is there in the bucket of shit? I mean, the whole thing, let's go back to the Pandora's thing. So they shake the box, right? Everything flows out. Woof! The world is now vulnerable to every bad idea and bad wish that was in the box. One thing sticks in the box. Hope, right? Lodged in the corner, apparently defying gravity, super glue, up in the corner, hope remains in the box. So is that thing, that statement of value that we characterize as hope, is that sufficient? Are there mechanisms and behaviors and social organization tools and art? And is there a torrent of something that counterbalances our distinct, clearly evident, historically well-proven, you know, trend towards violence on one another? Is there something that actually could save the day instead of just crush the day? Yeah, it seems to me like there is, but it's not well distributed. So this is this gets back to that phrase I already used once that I think is a well understood psychological phenomenon in human beings at large, which is um, what they call negative confirmation bias, right? So we are we seem to be existentially attuned to very quickly perceive negative events and negative emotions and all sorts of that sort of stuff. We we see them, we internalize them, we react to them very quickly, very easily, but positive that their their alternate numbers are very difficult for us to pick up appreciate actually embrace and internalize so for whatever reason we seem as a species we seem to be built that way and i don't like to be like a nature nurture you know heavy fate well that's, fatalistic just, that's person. economics right that's <clears throat> economics that's Kahneman 101 well but it's it, that, bias. But the, the economics is just an emergent property of that ex, that pre-existing condition of humanity in my opinion like that's that that confirmation bias comes from somewhere deeper. We see it in the form of economics and decision making and buying habits and all that shit, but it comes from somewhere profoundly down in there. You know, like this is think about like the number of people. Think about your emotional reactions to your own fucking life. You know, how quick and easy is it to look at something and go like, oh, I fucked that up, or why did I do that, or oh, I'm so stupid, or those are those are all the quickest things that arrive instead of like I stub my t you know the. the Right. What the Buddhists call the arrows of fate, right? The first one is the thing that happens to you, and then there's 20 or 30 fucking ones that follow that you shoot yourself with right after that. And those are all optional, right? But they come so quickly, and they're so conditioned in us. Well, when you start talking about confirmation bias and behavioral economics, behavioral economics are just observing that human beings seem to have a tendency to overweight low risk, to magnify a low risk, and inflate its value in decision-making by essentially giving it too much value mm -hmm. and to minimize the value of low risk in relation to the likelihood of success. So, so we, we, we're basically bent, it seems that it's a human property, to essentially inflate risk that is low and minimize risk that is high. We will literally not notice where the risk is actually lower or higher appropriately. We don't do it well. Right. 
So, but is this the thing? Is that the nugget that leads to empire and violence and death? But maybe the nugget that says, hey, this guy's likely, or this woman, I mean, let's take the rare case where the woman is the dictator and has control of the armies. I can't think of one right offhand other than maybe some African ones or some Middle Eastern ones from the, you know, before the time of Christ. And this character says, they're going to smite me. I better get in there and kick their asses. Mm-hmm. Because there is a risk. They're going to get my corn. I've got this one acorn. I'm licking it and sniffing it. I don't want to eat it because it's all the wealth I've got. But they're going to take it. I better get on over there and kill them. And while I'm over there, I'll take their acorns. Mm-hmm. Is that it? That it comes from our inability to appropriately judge risk? So well, that- we're just aggressively offsetting misjudgment by murdering the possibility of yeah i don't know but how the fuck do we account for all the other stuff then this is what's interesting to me so okay so like i said if you if you if you blow it up to like a really really quick version of all the same series of events if we accept my version of of the history of the world where (laughs) these things shift at some point from kind of the highest expressions of the culture and they they decline in some tangible way and they become violent and they become chaotic and they self-destruct or they exact such environmental destruction that they can't continue or whatever the fuck happens, but they end. And then something else starts up again, whether it's in the same place or somewhere else. What's going on? What I want to think about is like, what is going on in that sweet spot where shit actually goes well and you get a proliferation of cultural creativity you actually have let me tell you i have an idea of how to respond to that here's what it is we get invited to dinner because most people don't have to go through the incredible torture of looking so carefully at human beings anomalous anti-self behaviors as this if we were to have this conversation at somebody's house they'd throw us out Well, for, yeah, for one thing, it'd be it's very difficult. You just need to like, take whatever <laughs> suffering that is and find a goddamn garage and put the hose in the window of your fucking car. <laughs> yeah, but that's why we do this with each other, so we can go to dinner parties and be uh, properly socialized human beings and actually have a nice time. <laughs> you and I can talk about this stuff, and then people can listen or not. But uh, they don't have to, <laughs> yeah, to be subjected to it. Oh, this part is particularly bad. These guys are really <laughs> dwelling on the self-erasing aspect of the species. I really don't. I want to tone that down and think about sports. Because that requires <laughs> no judgment other than whether or not I like a team. <laughs> not whether or not I'd like to have their city erased because I'm a little pissed about the outcome of the game. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Uh, but I mean, so th- th- this is interesting to me because like that, it seems to me like there are these creative responses to these periods and the, and that creative side of things, that cultural impulse is like a life giving, uh, antidote. It, it is some sort of answer to that fundamental problem of human confirmation bias, negative confirmation bias. So when you look at beautiful art, whether it's music or performance or dance or visual arts or literature or whatever the fuck it is, whatever your thing is, it, it it's a way of transmitting some sort of character of spirit from one person to the next, sometimes across great distances of time, that's totally magic. And so we have that in us too, and maybe that's exactly what I you're agree. talking about. I so agree. that's I mean, you go and you stand in a room 
with these luminescent paintings and fine earthenwares from the ancient Chinese or from the post-medieval painters, and you are transported, unless you're Woody Allen, in which case you take that as grist for the despair mill. But, you know, yeah. How does, I don't look, it, it, is there a reaction to violence? Is it, is, after World War II, was there a great global avalanche of creative beauty that followed that chaos and murder? Uh, uh, yeah, maybe there, I think, well, okay, look at uh, U.S. culture. Let's just look at ourselves for a second. What was arguably the greatest period of the visual arts, let's say, actually, all, all of the above, music, popular music, visual arts, uh, cinema, what was the high point? Yeah, 1957 to probably 1970s. Yeah, the late 70s, let's say, late 70s. And, okay, that seems like a pretty clear echo to me. You get, you know, abstract expressionism, you get, like, uh, all kinds of shit, right? And the whole countercultural movement, uh, resistance to violence, a mass uh, objection to violence being visited on another country. global rise of a new art form in music. Right, so these things are... Anti-war sentiment carried embedded in music and art and everything else. But there was also a war, by the way, uh, to react to. It wasn't like there was a pause of much time. We had a little war in 1951, another little war beginning in 1963 and going on until 1975. Oh, yeah. And then, of course, through the 80s, a, a, a constant. I mean, the entire Cold War period was a, was a, a completely militarized and violent well, it was a hot war in Angola, which is a proxy war between us and the Russians using yeah. cardboard cutouts from Cuba and, uh, you know, the well, FTL. Pretty much all of Latin America during the 1980s, I mean, you know very well. So I, I, anyway, I, I think, yeah, so I think, yes, I think there are, um, there are little, like, spasms. That one, I mean, I'm going to go ahead and say I think that one is sort of like, that one's not a, a peak. That one is a the moment before the heart attack finally kills you. That's, that's what I'm going to call that period. Because I think that, you know, then you get Reaganism and the whole, it's... I wonder, yeah. I mean, if you start really thinking about what we're talking about, when we, when we start with, we start, our off-the-shelf supposition was human beings have this conflict between what's beautiful and art and characterizes the things that we say that are that our cultural response to certain things is to say this is what's best about the species and the other part which is that we murder each other for a wide variety of reasons some excusable some totally capricious in vast numbers over a long period of time as far as we can remember we got an ice man that we know was murdered you know <laughs> yeah for 15,000 years ago um, somebody shot him from a distance with an arrow. Apparently, they didn't want to get involved with him because no, he had a hand. He was they, fierce. They caved his so, head in after that, though. They made, yeah. sh they made sure. But so we know that that that, that has been going on indefinitely mm -hmm. with hominids, right? Oh yeah, I think it's a yeah, that's a feature of the species. And there's no doubt. That's I love that. that okay, in. let's just let's call it that. Let's take it as a geological, a topographical fact. Like you got these long periods of flat, the deserts, the open spaces, the plains, lush waterlands, and then these craggy, jutting up violent er eruptions, uh, volcanic 
periods where a human's violence just breaks out. Mm-hmm. So, so are they, you know, is this time any different from any other time other than the fact that our vast, incredibly enhanced skill as tool makers, we're the sharpest tool makers in this part of the universe for sure, um, makes it more likely that we can do a wholesale destruction on ourselves globally even the people who really don't have anything to do with it just get swept aside. Uh, we're just, you know, atomic tidal wave or biological tidal wave with an atomic tidal wave, a little icing and cake action. You know, I mean, are, are, is there just despair? Is that a certainty? My, my question of this whole, this whole subject is, I would like it not to be a certainty that the end game for the species is just mandated to be violent and massive. I would like that not to be done. The fact that we started with this other point, which is America is the arsenal of violence for the world. It's not to say there are not other vendors. The French come in a close second, the Chinese the third, the Russians in fourth, and the British in fifth. You know, historic hierarchy, well established. But we're, you know, by a factor of two ahead of everybody. Um, Does that just mean that we just inevitably, because we tie economics to our handy interest in embellished death-dealing machinery, you know, does that that just doom us as a species? No, I mean, I, I too am not willing to go there because I don't think that kind of hopelessness has any... Uh, particular appeal unless you're straight up nihilist and you just you know that's why that's how you want to roll but i can't i can't do it i I think that uh, no what i think is true about it though is that i think what's true about everything you just said is that it's important to realize that the cards are stacked like the game is rigged before we begin i think we do have a huge set of hurdles in front of us to overcome in order to subvert to to what is to some degree a built-in tendency to violence and self-destruction like that's that's a big deal when you have that as a pre-existing feature that is to say that the grand and beautiful objective is to gain some ground above that that is ordinarily just given to the human nature which is in some sense just really crude and violent well yeah basically i mean as far as we know we're the only self-aware animals that we've that we've encountered we haven't found any other ones yet unless the dolphins have got it going on but we can't talk to them so we don't know but you know what i mean there's not a lot of those kinds of creatures that have bummer for them if they are self-aware or if they're not <laughs> no bummer for them if they're self-aware like motherfucker you people are making decisions for us i want my i want my voice heard i'm sorry can't can't make that out i don't yeah <laughs> I do feel badly for them, regardless of whether they're self-conscious or not. <laughs> they're really, they, we are screwing them over. It doesn't even matter if they know that it's happening. <laughs> but you know what I mean? Like we have a- Part of the portfolio, my friend. Part of the portfolio. <laughs> we have some sort of special relationship with ourselves, let's say. We're, the notion that we are aware of ourselves and we can identify our own thinking and we can be aware of our mortality and all this kind of shit that, that makes us what kind of animals we specifically are. I think it means that we have a chance to do something about being fundamentally wired for not much more than sex and violence. We have I just op- want to point out that nobody's ever found a cave painting of a stabbing, which I'm relieved by. Yeah, that's interesting. 
What? Hey, so what is it? What what captivated you about those kinds of art form? Because you were specifically attracted to old pieces of art and specifically yeah. textile arts. Why? No. What ha- what what do you think it was about those things that captured your interest? Um, I think. And where did it before... start? Did it start with Guatemalan textile stuff? Is that where you oh, yeah. first? Okay. Oh yeah. I, we, you know, um, the four of us went over the bridge uh, from Tapachula into Guatemala, and as we were walking toward the bus, I saw my first wad of indigenous Guatemalan Mayan peoples dressed in trajes uh, típicas, uh, the typical clothing of that place and time. And I have... I know that my relationship with Mary Bergaro and her interest in textiles and her introducing me to woven materials, and I had some sort of native uh, comfort with textiles as a medium, as a physical property, and I loved um, watching them be woven, and I had dyed many textiles and spun and drop weave things, you know, carded wool and so forth. So I had this sort of beginning um, sort of tactile connection with that, the properties of that medium. And when I walked over that bridge, I just was smitten. Hmm. I mean, I think the, it was basically sort of going from the eight crayon box to the thousand crayon box. That's what happened to my mind. I just went from knowing what I thought textiles were to recognizing that they were culture, they were beautiful, they were something that people created by hand and put on their own bodies and had daily use properties that I knew consciously. That's why you wear things to keep warm. I mean, I had all that, but I didn't have any connection with it as a, uh, as a, as, as a transportation device for mythology as a palette for conducting and carrying forward the notion of cultural stories. Uh, mm-hmm. that, you know, that they, are, they are history books. Um, they denote time and place. They denote cultural location. They de- denote tribal ancestry. They denote feasts and elements of culture. And I, didn't, I had no knowledge of any of that, never even had given it any thought until that first few weeks in Guatemala in 1978, and I just was just knocked out. And uh, I am, as we're talking, looking at the sute that I bought uh, in Chichicastenango from that old woman that I argued with for two days for 50 bucks. Um, I am looking at it right now, and it still just knocks me down. The, sh- the shit is fucking fantastic, and it has an entire pictographic representation of a cultural moment and the customs that that portray. It's right there in front of me. I can tell you what was happening in 1940 in that village in terms of what the men were doing and how they symbolize it with the hat wear in the suit day that they had. So when I discovered that, hmm. and you were right there with me, actually. Yeah, I was when, just a little kid, so I didn't have the same kind of... I, I was just confused by everything I was seeing. I wasn't really experiencing it in any kind of context, I don't think. I was probably seven years old. Yeah, I mean, I was 20, whatever the hell it was, seven or eight or something, but I I was, or maybe 30. I didn't understand what was happening to me, 
is as as intelligent and observant as I might have thought I was. I had no connection with cultures other than California, really. I'd been to Alaska, but that's 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 those are the rudiments of savagery. That's not culture. So, well, at that time, I'm sure now it's much improved. <laughs> uh, Apologies but, to our Alaskan listeners. <laughs> exactly. And so, uh, and so uh, but you know, uh, these indigenous peoples were just carrying this uh, this culture around in the backs, and within months, I, I recognized that I'd met people like uh, 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 Rosario Alves Miralba who headed the Museum of Ixchel in Guatemala City, the textile museum. I met these people. I was a very talkative kid, very curious. I didn't speak Spanish at all, but Mary did. And so I was lucky, and I just started immediately collecting things, dragging you poor kids around in the middle of the night doing that. Um, and I, re I remember that you, when you were haggling with that exact piece that you're looking at that you're describing, I went to, while you were doing that, because it, it really did take like a couple of days of you just talking to that woman <laughs> and I didn't want anything to do with it. I was bored because I didn't understand what the hell was going on. I couldn't see the point. I didn't know, I didn't know why this was taking so long. And it, we were in yeah, Chichicastenango, which is now a kind of a famous market town in the Guatemalan highlands. But in the late seventies, I don't know, it was still pretty, pretty rural and pretty, very indigenous. And there weren't a lot of, uh, of gringo travel. There were a few hippies wandering through, but not a lot. Right. And I went to the, I remember when you were doing that, I wandered off on my own. I don't remember if I was with anybody or if I was with Stephanie or I don't remember, but I, I went into the church and the, <laughs> the, because I, because I thought churches would be interesting or like whatever. Um, it was something to go see cause there wasn't a lot else there. And I went in there and it was a, a church. I don't know if it's still like this. I haven't, I don't even know if I've been back to that town since I was a kid, maybe, uh, when I was a teenager? I don't know. I don't remember. But the church at that time was basically a... What do they call it in that region? It's not Santa Ria. They call it something else. But it's the same idea. They, the indigenous people basically took the Catholic... They mapped all the Catholic saints and the whole... Uh, all, the whole Catholic story, they just mapped onto indigenous gods and goddesses. And they did, like, chicken sacrifices. There was, like, a bunch of bloody dead chickens that they had sacrificed in there in front of the, like, Stations of the Cross. There was different shit happening at yeah, each one. Yeah, candles all down the oh, middle. Oh, candles, yeah. It was just, like, lit with candles melting over the floor. And it was, like, a trippy fucking Hollywood set of some exotic <laughs> voodoo nightmare church. And I just remember walking in there and going, like, oh, God, this is really, really different. <laughs> <laughs> was, I remember uh, asking Mary. I remember realizing that I that you'd sort of gone missing, and asking Mary if she knew where you were. And we kind of went looking, and we went in the church, and sure enough, there you were. And you were just sort of sitting in the back on one of the you know benches. I, I stayed in there for the longest time because <laughs> yeah, there, yeah, you were there just was watching. there was all kinds yeah. of shit going on. The people were just like, man, there's just you know a little white kid watching. We don't care. And so I was just sat there in a pew, and yeah. I think there was even a whole Catholic thing that happened, like a regular. A regular yes. mass came in and just did its thing, but the, the people who were ch killing the chickens and shit didn't give a, they didn't care at all. But the <laughs> priest was up there and he was still doing like the tripartite mass. So it was like this amazing convert. And I didn't know anything about that either, despite having grown up around uh, my grandmother. Right, you're your, still your speaking mom. Latin. Well, I grew up, you know, we grew up, I grew up around your mom and her, right. uh, and her insane Catholicism, but I didn't, I was never indoctrinated. 
Like, unlike right. you, I didn't have the, I didn't go through all the shit. So I didn't know, I just knew that she had a room full of these weird pictures and like really strange icons that were scary as shit. And I didn't know it, but I had no context for any of them. So I recognized the things in the church, the Catholic things, like the bloody Jesus and the, the, the Trinity and like all that. So I recognized, I didn't identify them because I didn't know what they were, but right. I, I understood there was some relationship. But then like the guy doing the mass in Latin with his back turned and all that stuff. And that was all going on while these people are still doing their thing, like on the floor with candles and speaking. And remember the incense, all the weird oh, incenses? Yeah. yeah, yeah, that place was a trip. <laughs> I'm sure it's still going on there, but I'm sure now probably. it's a tourist destination. You would probably get charged to hang out in there. I <laughs> anyway, okay, so I think this is inculcated. I think this is really interesting because so something that got to you was communication. Oh, it, it, I I was I immediately I mean within a couple of days I realized that the, the everything that they were wearing had some meaning. And it wasn't just, I mean, they had things that they wore for work. They had things that they wore for baptisms. They had, just like, you know, we did. They, I mean, like my yeah. mother had a pink hat she wore to church on certain celebrating Easter. And she, you know, so they were they were not different in that sense. They were just much denser. And they were just richer because they conveyed a long history mm -hmm. at the individual level. And those people wove their own story. They carried forward the story. When you got married and you had uh, the cofradia, the town mayor, come in, you kept whatever it was you wove for your daughter's wedding or for your own wedding forever in a box. And, right. and I was going through basically rummaging through the heritage clothing of these people who were now grandmother was dead and so her, her stuff was for sale. And I mean, I didn't quite understand that, that I was trespassing on that, mm -hmm. but I but I did recognize what it symbolized very quickly. And so, you know, after that, I just thought, okay, I just want to find the examples that move me. I wasn't a sophisticated guy. I just recognized that the things that moved me were better. They were just better. The, the, you know, if you just simply said it instead of art, you talked about it as craft, the conveyance yeah. of culture through craft, there was very high craft and there was daily JC Penny craft. Well, I run, yeah, this is an this is a funny thing that you mentioned that specific term because I'm running into this a lot with chocolate, which by the way is what I do for my work. And um, craft is a huge, a very popular term in lots of food spaces, not just chocolate. But it's interesting how people want to overload that word. You know, it doesn't have anything yeah. to do with quality. It has to, you know, it has to do with yeah. a certain certain scale that is affectable by the intercession of one artisan. You know, somebody right. somebody with an intent. They can suck at their job. It's still it's still if if I if I just, if I took up furniture making tomorrow and I made you a chair, it would be a shit chair. But I would have crafted I'd, that I'd, chair. I sit in it. Yeah, you, you could probably use it. I would hope that it wouldn't, you know, I'd make something that wouldn't fall apart on you, but I but it's going to take me years to get good at making a chair. And so right. that's that's the thing. And 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 in some ways I might not ever get as good at making chairs as my, you know, cousin Johnny who's just kicks ass at chair making. You know, and and we might both be well, craft people. Well, that's the difference between art and craft or luxury and commodity. Nah, I think it, yeah, okay. Yeah. Anyways, I don't want to go down too far in that pathway because it's a whole it's a weird, morass. But it's a weird but... thing. So the so the textile thing 
the, the, you know, when we start talking about it, so go, let's go back to where we started. Wait, I actually think the textiles are more art than craft, personally. Because... Oh, well, they, they end up being because they're deliberate. Yeah, but don't you think... I mean, craft, to me, is the iteration of an activity. It's, a, it's, a, it's, an, it's an inspiration by an artisan that's repeated. Well, that's, there's the craft of weaving, and you can weave yeah, a, a right, plain okay. weave shawl. And, and okay, that's, that keeps you warm and so forth. That's craft goods. Yep. Then there's the shawl that you made for the boda. There's the shawl that you made for, for that funeral, for that person, and it's used once. Yeah. And it is everything you've got as a weaver is in there because that's devotional art. And it is given away to the husband or wife of the dead party, and they shelve it. Yeah. And it becomes and it becomes not grave goods, but family heirloom goods. Now that is art. We revere that in all of Europe, the paintings of of dull looking people by Van Dyke. These are considered art. They're not considered craft mm -hmm. uh, in certain cases, right? depending on the skill of the artist, right? So the same thing is true in textiles, and they also convey huge cultural values based on the ritual that the piece is associated with. So then you go farther back, when I discovered pre-Columbian textiles, I discovered that not only did they do that, which I had seen before, that, that they actually depicted in art form flying birds with hallucinations coming out of their mouths and war scenes and murders and festivals and um, bloodlettings and sex rituals and fertility and you name it in absolutely vivid, sometimes quite hallucinogenically enhanced style. You were literally looking at a record of history through the art of it as representational reality. It was fucking amazing. And that made the Guatemalan understanding that I had of, of, of myth and culture as they, as they grow and, and change and move into history and become that, become history. Uh, then I could look 2,500 years into the past and see the, in, the complete record of culture written in textiles. Mm -hmm. It was pretty mind-boggling. And not only that, it was beautiful. I mean, there was a lot of shit, right back to what we were saying. You know, there's a lot of craft, you know, Bobby's shirt, Tommy's shirt, Mommy's shirt, and they're all there. But there were ritual burial textiles that would wrap around the fardo, the, the mummy, mm -hmm. and, and would depict the warrior's greatest achievements or an actual battle scene or all of the avian life in that place for during that person because that person had some special connection to birds mm -hmm. and and well you know wow and a lot of it i would say at least half of it were depictions of violence um That's, that yeah. is right back to where we started which is there may be a blessed piece of the human psyche, which is floating above in the magical aspect of our ability to observe what is best and be most beautiful about us in which we're sitting in right now, this moment in peace. Mm -hmm. you know, it's the luxury of this time to talk about these things in the abstract. And at the same time, 
incessantly over time in all of these societies globally, there is a vast and ongoing urgency which seems to evince itself as a, almost a compulsion to violence. So I'm wondering, it, it gets me wondering whether if the, if the things that we really resonate with when we observe art and it affects us, if it has an impact at all, if it works on us, it's transmitting, it's communicating something. At that moment that we have an emotional engagement with whatever it is, a painting, a weaving, a song, a, whatever that whatever that piece of communication is, it strikes me that maybe the antidote to that impulse of violence is just that fundamental human emotionality, the emotional connection between us and some person in the present or the past. And that once that's present, the violence is no longer, at least briefly, no longer possible. Even if yeah. that communication is about violence. No, I agree with that. I think that there's some sort of cosmological connection where we willingly suspend facts and any kind of inclination towards anything but wonder when we're looking at what we think of as art. Mm -hmm. We are transported in some way, whatever the soul of humanness is, is transported into a place that just is another territory, is away from that and doesn't linger with it. Even as you say, if you're looking at an image of violence, if you're looking at Guernica, you don't necessarily, unless you're an academic, think of it as a depiction of warfare. Mm -hmm. You can look, you have looked at Wari and Tiwanaku and Paracas and Shavin depictions of cruelty and, you know, vast uh, horrors of torture and bloodletting. And somehow, because it was captured with such astonishing vitality, it doesn't come across as being, oh my, how horrible, it's a portrait of war or murder. It comes across as an historical record of the beauty and astonishing vitality of uh, that culture's ability to portray life as art, which somehow scrubs it up and cleans it apart from the taint and stench of its um, bloody origins. It's a very magical and strange thing how art transports us past the facts. Mm -hmm. yeah. I mean, you go to the Holocaust Museum and there you are wandering around in a place where the past is portrayed in an art form in order to inform us. It is an absolute horror story that it is conveying. And somehow it both conveys that and there is something chilling and awful and completely discomforting about it. And at the same time, it reassures us that we can confront these elements of ourselves. And as a record, it soothes us and makes us realize that we have responsibility not to repeat that and that we are able to avoid having to do that over and over endlessly. How does that happen? How does that paradox, how, does, how do those two things live with one another? Yeah, hope. We get back yeah. into the box. <laughs> yeah, exactly. There it was, stuck in the corner. You know, I, yeah. And, and I'm usually a naysayer, um, but that word really 
you know, I mean, in the end, when you, you talk about these murderous and almost diabolical tendencies that we have as a species that we've been talking about, which are relieved only by this sort of magical, rich fantasy life and sense of wonder, you end up with the idea that hope is what we get um, as a guarantor against self-extinction in the end. And it, we just hope that that doesn't happen to us. And we act to make the hope a likelihood rather than just some vague possibility which is unreliable at best. Very strange. So there it is, hope. It makes me think of that Dickinson poem, but I only remember the first stanza. Hope is the thing with feathers that perches in the soul, sings the tune without the words and never stops at all. Something like that. If anybody remembers the whole thing, let me know. I guess I could go look it up on the internet, but I'm not gonna do that right now. Anyway, hope, that's what sticks. Let us know if you enjoyed that conversation. Leave us a comment or email us. You can use my email for now while we set up something more official. SenecaClassen at gmail.com. S-E-N-E-C-A-K-L-A-S-S-E-N. Tell us how things are going. If you'd like us to tackle any topics or what you think of the concept, be in touch. I'll talk to you next time. Thanks. Bye.